Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of One Step Beyond. This is a podcast about transformation through leadership. On our show, we have conversations with people who are creating change in business, in their community, and in their lives by choosing to lead. This is about daring to overcome barriers, push past limitations, and reshape our present and our future. Joining us for this conversation is another true liver of life, my colleague, Monica Kroc. Monica is a physical presence and mindfulness coach with Cadence and a fellow vegan. This is the second time we're bringing in a co-host on the show, and I'm super excited to have her here. So, you know, I've been thinking a lot lately about what it means to create change, make real change in life. And I've spent so much of my time helping individuals and teams and organizations shift that sometimes I forget what it means to create change in my own life and to hold up that mirror. I've been spending a lot of time thinking about just being happy and doing things that matter to me that I like doing, you know, like spending time with my kids, spending time with my partner, spending time with my friends, spending time on my physical health, you know, things that I actually really enjoy doing and how easy it is to put something in the way always, especially now that I'm older and there's the concerns of the business and there's bills to pay and there's stuff to do. The more I've been thinking about it, the more I realize it's at least for me, kind of shockingly simple to do things that you want to do and to focus on the things that you really want to do and that you're passionate about. You just got to build it into your day. It's kind of like scheduling anything else. I have been lately like really scheduling out my life, but the schedule has been about doing things I like to do and spending time with people that I want to spend time with and creating the kind of change that I want to create in myself and the world around me. And it's been huge. Uh, It's something I've been focusing on lately, but it's really been bearing a lot of fruit in the past month. And uh, I got to say, you know, just lately life has just been a blast. I've been really, really enjoying my day to day and it's, uh, it's been meaningful. So something that I encourage for all of you with that in mind, today's guest is someone that I am a really big believer in and someone who is created very significant change in this world and continues to do so today. So our guest today is Jake Conroy, a longtime animal rights activist, designer, and writer. He's helped organize and participated in successful local, regional, national, and international pressure campaigns. He's also helped build the foundation of the grassroots campaign Shack USA and was arrested by the U.S. government for his role. Dubbed the Shack 7, Jake and his co-defendants were found guilty and he was sentenced to four years in federal prison. On his release, Jake went about his activism, but in a new way, and the story is, I find, to be very powerful and deeply inspirational. Currently, he works at the Rainforest Action Network, an international organization using pressure campaigns to stop rainforest deforestation, fossil fuel extraction, and support human rights. He can be found pontificating online as the Cranky Vegan, where he irritates everyone with his thoughts on the tactics, strategies, and optics of the grassroots animal rights movement. So before we get started, I want to thank our sponsors, SE Electronics. And if you haven't yet, then please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. So let's get to our episode. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. Hey, 
Hey everyone, and welcome back to the show. Uh, so like I mentioned in the intro, today's guest is Jake Conroy. This is someone that I've known for quite a long time, and I've always been really inspired by his willingness to truly stand up for what he believes in. And in that, today's conversation is one that I, both Monica and I take very seriously because it has to do with something that's near and dear in our heart, which is uh, animal welfare and really taking a stand for that. So, Jake, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. So I know so much of your story just from knowing you the little bit that I know you and, of course, like mutual friends and following you out throughout the years. And there's a lot to be said here. One of the things that I'd say right off the bat is you're just someone that has always, from my perspective, really put himself out there to create the kind of change that you want to see in the world. But I know that's had some pretty serious consequences in your life. For our audience who won't know a lot about you from the start, what do you want to share about who you are and what your path through life has been? Yeah, um, I, you know, for me, like, I, I think I realized at a pretty early age that I wanted, you know, to make change. Um, I wanted to, I saw things that upset me and bothered me. I, and um, I just wanted to right wrongs, really. And to that end, you know, I got involved in a lot of uh, activism and a variety of different issues. I predominantly focused on animal rights uh, and veganism and things like that. Um, and I really was interested in grassroots activism, uh, the idea of people power, the idea that like small communities can do it themselves. Um, they don't need to rely on big budgets or laws to be passed or politicians to achieve the things we want to achieve. We can just set out and do them. Um, and that was has always really inspired me. And so to that end, like that's how I've kind of led my life. Like I see things that upset me. I, I want to change them. I figure out ways to do that, and I and I go about doing that. And it's ended up looking like a lot of different things. You know, running small campaigns um, on local local level, regional level, national level, international level. Um, and and I've had a lot of successes and things that I've been proud of. Um, but also that's meant a lot of consequences. People that are kind of familiar with my story often. You know, talk about my time, you know, I was incarcerated. So my time in prison was kind of like a big thing. Um, being incarcerated for several years for, for my activism um, is an interesting story, uh, <laughs> to say the least. It's hard for me to like talk about myself and be like, oh, I have this really interesting story, blah, blah, blah. It's like, I just feel like I'm someone that did something that, you know, I saw something that I felt needed to change and I went out and did it. Consequences came with that, I suppose. But yeah, I think I imagine we'll probably dive into some of this stuff later down in the conversation. Absolutely. Um, let's be specific about it. And you've been really on the front lines of animal rights activism for many years. So what does that look like from like the start to now? Like, and how has that changed from you? Yeah, I think for me, it's a constant journey, right? And like anything in life is a constant journey. It is about learning. It's about looking at the history of our movement or the animal rights movement, the other social justice movements and how they won and how they lost things that worked and didn't work. Like anyone, as you get older, like life changes, situations change, consequences and, and things catch up with you. I always think of the Tupac quote, and I'm totally paraphrasing, but, you know, I basically said, like, if you want to change the world, you got to do it before you're 30. Um, because once you're 30, the state's got you, right? You got bills, you got a house, you got rent, you got a job, you got kids, you got family. And, and like my life actually played out that way as well. I feel like, you know, from the time I got involved in activism when I was 18 or 19 to when I went to prison, when I was 30, 
I just went hard. Like I was like, I, I want to change the world and I got a limited time to do it before it catches up with me. I'm just going to do it. And when you get out of prison, life suddenly changes beyond just now you're like a felon. <laughs> you just got out of prison. You also now have those responsibilities that Tupac was referencing. I mean, the guy was a genius. Um, so <laughs> he was so right. And so, yeah, like life changes, cons- uh, responsibilities change. And I think, you know, there is something to be said of like, oh, you get older and wiser. And not that what I did in the past was stupid, but, you know, you just kind of reevaluate how you go about making change so that you build yourself to last, right? Like you can run around and act like as radical as you want, but that catches up with you. You can do that for a couple of years. But now that I'm 45 years old, I can't be, you know, running in the streets causing problems 24 hours a day. Like you just got to, you got to figure out other ways to make change that as effective as what you're doing previously, if not more so, also have longevity to that. Can you explain why it's important to know the history of the animal rights movement? Well, I think it's important to know the history of any movement that you're involved in or any community that you're involved in. I think the animal rights movement is often kind of disregarded as like this fringe of the fringe and a bunch of wackos doing, you know, dumb stuff about, you know, for things that people don't really care about. But there's there's a pretty like rich history in the animal rights movement and animal welfare movements of really like radical resistance. You know, my heart is really in grassroots organizing, as I said previously, and, and radical activism. I think there's a lot of interesting things happen in those spaces. And the animal rights movement has like this really rich history of it. And I and I think it's often forgotten about it, overlooked because it is radical and it is kind of this fringe piece. On a kind of broader scale, like history of social justice movements are incredibly important to know because there are amazing people that did amazing things and no one knows about them. They go forgotten as time marches on. And so I think it's important to know who these people were. I think it's important to know what their strategies and tactics were so that you can learn what worked and what didn't work and then use what you learn to build stronger movements, to build more successful movements, to build like powerful communities in order for us to make change. And I I don't think that's like strictly an animal rights thing, I think, or even an activist thing. I think if we want to build better communities, better corporations, better collectives. Like we need to know what worked and what didn't work in the past. And knowing what failed is just as important as what worked because, you know, you can build on that and make things better for all of us. There's an interesting crossroads that I think we're at in terms of, you know, animal rights and veganism where because you can get a vegan burger at Burger King, there might be the idea that somehow we've won or we're winning and that the world is changing. But on the flip side, it could just simply be that, No, there's just more options, but things are actually largely the same. Like, you know, maybe people aren't more aware of animal rights. And in fact, maybe they're thinking that animals are being treated more fairly just because you can get an impossible patty or a Beyond Burger. What are your thoughts? Like, are we in a place now where because we have all these options, are we in danger of losing the teeth of the movement here? I think that's a pretty big question. I don't think that's the only reason that the animal rights movement loses teeth uh, and has lost a bit of its bite. But I think it's part of it. The animal rights movement is interesting because it relies so heavily on the idea of individual lifestyle change and that if we can just change enough individuals to be the way that we want them to be, that will somehow cripple and destroy these trillion-dollar industries. And I just don't think that's the case. I think Burger King and McDonald's and all these places having plant-based options is great. Um, I think it's you know the more available these options are for people, the more people will be interested in trying them. But I think that like – a large chunk of the animal rights movement believes that these are steps forward. 
that these are successes when really it's just corporations trying to catch cash in on as many niche markets as it possibly can. That's why they have the gluten-free option and they have the, the vegetarian option and the vegan option and the keto option and the paleo option. Like they don't give a shit about any of these people. Like they want to make money off of you. I mean, that's how corporations work. And again, like I'm happy those things are there. I don't think they're measures of success, at least measurements of success towards the things that I want to achieve. Why is it important for the animal rights movement to focus on corporate pressure? I think it rides off that last answer was that it's important that we put pressure on corporations because ultimately that's where these decisions are being made. Like we talk loads about supply and demand, right? The idea that the demand will affect the supply. And therefore, again, if we try to create billions of vegans or billions of whatever we want to achieve in the world, like in order to pressure corporations to do things differently, then we will succeed. And I just think that's an impossible notion. I just can't think of any social justice movement that's won predominantly by just changing lifestyle and, and changing demand. The power really lies in the supply. And, and that means going after corporations and putting pressure on corporations. In the 70s, you know, we were kind of fed this huge lie that if we recycle, we'll save the planet, right? And so there's this huge push for everyone to recycle and everyone needs to recycle this and that. And it's our responsibility to save the planet by recycling one item at a time. But the reality is like in the United States, at least it's something like 4% of, of waste is created by the consumer and 96% or something like that is produced by the corporations. So we were fed this idea that like change is the responsibility of the individual and the corporations just go unpunished. And I think that's really been kind of the bane of social justice movements, particularly things like the animal rights movement where, oh, it's up to the individual to change, you know, so forth and so on. If we hold these corporations' feet to the fire and say, this is your responsibility, like you need to make these changes. And if not, we're, we're going to make the changes for you. That's when they start to listen. I think corporations care about two things. They care about profit and they care about public persona. And if you can negatively impact both of those things, they'll end up doing what you want to do, regardless if it's a small, you know, corner store or if it's one of the largest corporations of its kind in the world. If you can affect those two things, you'll get them to do what you want to do. While that's an, a huge undertaking, I also think you have a better chance of success of moving 10 CEOs or 10 board of directors of a corporation more than you have the ability to move 20, 30, 40, 50% of a population that you may need in order to shift the demand of, of one corporation. So like from your perspective, what are the challenges involved in keeping a, a movement like, again, like the animal rights movement on track and not getting taken off course by, you know, kind of like false prophets or people who are just seeking to kind of like be a iconoclast or even just internal schisms in, in, um, in fighting and direction? How can we avoid these things derailing movements and stopping progress? It's hard. I mean, particularly in like a culture that we live in now where we have influencers and we have big money and it's and all that stuff's being pushed into these all corners of society, including activism and the animal rights movement, particularly in like the grassroots animal rights movement, where I think a lot of important change can come from. We've been fed this idea that like the more followers that you have, the more influence you have, the more you know likes you have, the more money you have, the better you are. And of course, the more money you have, the more influence you have, the more people pay attention to you, the less likely you are to ruffle feathers. That's probably not a very vegan expression. I'm not right, but I'm going to go with it. <laughs> ruffle the, the synthetic feathers. Uh, so I think that like 
you know, I, I, you know, money ends up corrupting, right? And I think money's important. You can't win without financing and backing and donations and support, but you can't let it overtake your goals. And I think you, we see that a lot now more than ever, at least in quote unquote Western world where people want influence. They want the big following. They want the ads and the sponsorships and all this garbage. And so that stuff really starts to take precedent. And it's so then it becomes easy in the animal rights movement to be like, well, let's just change some people to go vegan. And every person you get to go vegan is a win. Well, that's an easy form of activism. Like you're not achieving anything, but you're also not losing anything. So it becomes very safe. To me, grassroots activism isn't about being safe. It's about taking risks uh, in order to win big. And I think when we sit back on our, our heels, you know, and just take the easy way out because we want that influence, you know, not, not a whole lot changes. I think we've seen this in a lot of different movements, the, the schisms between people, you know, like people are still people, no matter what they can be involved in the corporate world. They could be involved in activism. Like people want to be within group. They want to belong. People want power. The people want influence and not because they're bad people. Cause you know, people want to feel safe and very often people believe that their ideas are good ideas and they want them to come to fruition. And if you're charismatic and smart and a little bit cagey, it's not that hard to get a bunch of people to follow you. A lot of great ideas have been taken off track just in those scenarios with good intentioned people just following the wrong leader. So I was real interested in your perspective on that because definitely, you know, over the past 20 years, we've seen multiple incidents of that, yet the movement keeps going. And that's really a lot of why Monica and I wanted to have you on the show. Like, I love what you're doing uh, with your online presence. It's real. And I think it's very accessible, very educational and also like it's pushing people but it's doing it in a cool way not like a toothless way in a cool way but it's also accessible and i, I like the balance you've hit i appreciate that yeah you know for me like kind of the strategy behind it is like i can be the, like this radical edgy asshole and and give the impression i want everyone to be like me but it's not really what what i want i want people to just shift one or two pieces towards or one or two pie pieces like towards me in this chart where like if you're a moderate or you're a middle of the road type of person, I'm hoping that like my more radical, aggressive, you know, way of thinking is going to get you to just move that one piece over to like a rights based position from a welfare based position. Mm. Like the biggest compliment that I get on my YouTube channel or social media is like, I appreciate what you're saying. I don't agree with you all the time, but you get me to think differently. And like, mm. that's what I want. I don't want someone to be like, oh, you're right. You're right. All, you know, like a yes man all the time. Like, I don't agree with you all the time, but you say some things that get me to think, and that's all I really want. I think history, including social justice movements, can be cyclical, and I definitely think they are in the animal rights movement, where you can go and look like, oh, 10 years ago, this is exactly what happened 20 years ago, and, and here we are currently coming in almost full circle to back to where or how it was when I first started getting involved in activism. It's super interesting. And so my hope is like with my YouTube presence and doing lectures and talks and things, I can help speed that cycle up to get it out of the place where it is now, which I think is kind of garbage mm -hmm. uh, in, in hopes of getting back into like a position where it's actually making significant change. What are the different roles in activism that you see oversaturated or underrepresented? Um, I think oversaturated, we see, again, it's the idea that like, I want to be this big name. I want to be an influencer. I want all the likes. I want the ad revenue, blah, 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 blah. It's this almost rush for grassroots activists to get out of grassroots activism and jump into that next stepping stone of like, now I'm a national organizer. Or now I can get paid or now I can do this or that. It's a dangerous way to be because grassroots movements, 
I think is where all the really important change happens. You grow those roots of community and, and people power and mobilization. You look at the accomplishments that like national organizations or even politicians are making, but that all comes on the backs of grassroots activism. And if there isn't grassroots activism there to, to make those things happen, where are we, right? Are we really going to continue to make change? And so I think this like rush to get out of grassroots activism in order to make money or whatever it is, is a big problem. And I think that way of thinking is pretty oversaturated currently in the grassroots animal rights movement. Undersaturated, people that don't get enough attention or there's just not a lot of, are all the kind of behind the scene roles. You know, I think again, with social media, the people that get the videos and all the likes and all this garbage are people that are like on bullhorns and yelling and holding signs <laughs> and like disrupting places and liberating animals and all yeah. this stuff. All that stuff's great. Like, don't get yeah. me wrong. But like of all the campaigns I've done and worked on, like the things we needed more than anything were like fundraisers and designers and lawyers and people that knew how the stock exchanges worked and like tax accountants, like shit that people would be like, I don't, I, you know, this is what I do for a living, but how does it really help? Well, they help, you know what I mean? Like those people are definitely undervalued and underappreciated and underrepresented in, in movements. I feel like I'm really going after social media a lot this, <laughs> this interview, but, but it's true. It's like everyone wants that picture of them, mm -hmm. like with the megaphone and the holding the beagle puppy or the chicken and all that stuff. And it's like, I want a picture of like a tax accountant, like working away on the keys or something like <laughs> crunching numbers look at this hero <laughs> okay man so i want to ask you about the lead up before you you went to to prison like i'm really interested in understanding the change if any of your activism pre-jail to post-jail so i'd love you to if you're comfortable with it just share like a quick kind of synopsis of what you're up to before going to jail what you went to jail for Anything you want to share about your time there? And then also how, if at all, has your activism changed since then? Yeah, uh, it's a huge question we could talk about for hours. Um, if people are interested in like the actual campaign I was working on, there's a documentary called The Animal People, which was uh, executive produced by Joaquin Phoenix. That's pretty great. I think it's on all the places except for Netflix at this point, unfortunately. Um but that's, it's a great documentary if you want to check it out. But yeah, so leading up to prison, myself and a handful of people started a group called Stop Huntington Animal Cruelty or SHAC USA, which was the US chapter of this campaign that had started a year earlier in England. And the idea was we were going to use pressure campaign. We were going to run a pressure campaign to shut down one of the world's largest laboratories of its kind. It's a contract research organization. They test on animals for third-party products, or they were a third-party company testing products for other corporations. And so we kind of took a, a strategy from the anti-apartheid movement where they, you know, at the time in the 80s, apartheid in South Africa was a huge issue. Everyone was opposed to it, but people that didn't live in South Africa, there's no real way for them to participate. The strategy was go after the banks that financed South Africa. And that's what they did. Then all of a sudden, people around the world could participate. And it worked. And so we figured we want to shut down this one laboratory that has a place in England and a place in New Jersey. And no one wants to go to New Jersey, let's be honest. And so we were like, how can people participate uh, in this campaign from around the world? And so we started picking what's called secondary and tertiary targets, going after places that the laboratory needs to stay open, 
but those companies don't need the laboratory to stay open. So for instance, banks, insurance agencies, we went after the New York Stock Exchange. We went after the over-the-counter bulletin board to try to get them delisted from being able to trade stocks. And it worked. Like you go to an insurance company that's never had protests before, you know, they have 10,000 insurance policies or whatever. It's like, cool, we'll all go away if you just get rid of one of your 10,000 insurance policies. And it worked. But a corporation can't legally operate without insurance. So all of a sudden, one of the world's largest laboratories doesn't have insurance anymore, and they physically can't operate or legally operate. And so we did that for about five and a half years where we went after the world's largest banks, the world's largest insurance companies, the world's you know largest pharmaceutical companies, and we financially crippled this laboratory. It was like worth $30 share price. Uh, the share price was like $30 at the beginning of the campaign, and by the height of the campaign, it was worth about two or three pennies a share. Like we just decimated them. But when you go after really large corporations – the government steps in and they were not happy with us. And so they launched uh, what was the biggest FBI investigation of the time and called us the biggest threat to the security of the nation, despite the fact that we were nonviolent animal rights protesters. We were the first group of people, I think the US government tried to hack into their computers using malware to try to get our passwords to our encryption software. They tapped our phones, they followed us, they did all sorts of like awful stuff. They charged us with a bunch of different uh, charges. We took it to trial. We were found guilty and we were all sentenced to prison. That's about as short as I can condense that story. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. But uh, yeah, so we all got sentenced to a variety of different prison lengths. I was sentenced to four years in federal prison, which I did in two prisons in Southern uh, California. Being an activist and being in the prison industrial complex in the United States was incredibly eye-opening. Everyone has a different experience, obviously. My experience was that it was terrifying and it was dangerous. It was violent. Um, there was a lot of like beatings and stabbings pretty regularly, like beatings, fights like every day. There was gang politics. There was uh, race riots. Um, and I'm like this like, hey, everybody, like, look at me. And I was like, please don't hurt me. You know, it's like, who's this guy? What are you in for? Well, I was protesting against a corporation. You know, and it's like, okay. Let's beat the shit out of this guy next. And so, so it really was like trying to navigate through this like really, I always say interesting or fascinating, and it was, but I don't want to downplay the immense like terribleness of the prison industrial complex. Like it is a horrifying and awful place, but it also was incredibly interesting. And if you can survive it, then all those interesting parts, you know, kind of come into place. When I got out of prison, you're put on, at least I was, I was put on to three years of probation. And so probation looks like you have a probation officer, you have to report to them once a month, you have to tell them everything about your life, your, you know, how much money you make, what your job is, how you spend that money, and you have to break it down, rent, bills, clothes, medical, blah, 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 blah. You're confined to a small district, and if you want to leave that district, you have to get permission, you have to tell your probation officer who you're going with, how you're getting there, who you're staying with, who this person is, blah, 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 blah. You have, they have a right to come to your house whenever they want, armed, um, and look through your stuff without a warrant for the entire time you're on probation. And you cannot have any interactions with police officers, meaning you can't get arrested, you can't jaywalk, you can't speed. And if you do, you have a possibility of being sent back to prison for the remainder of your probationary period. So what that means, all that, you know, long story short, when I got out, I had to figure out what my activism looked like. I'd spent the last 10 plus years doing radical activism and, and causing a lot of problems and going against some of the world's largest corporations pretty aggressively, I can jump right back into that. And so, yeah, activism starts to look a little different. And it kind of goes back to that first or second question of like, 
how does activism change as you got older? Well, part of it was I had to figure out new ways to be as effective as I wanted to be without getting in as much trouble. And does that mean I have to tone down my beliefs? Does that mean I have to change my my feelings about grassroots activism or radicalism or any of those things? I just kind of, you know, I figured it out, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, life changes, activism changes. And in a way, if there's like a silver lining to it, what it meant for me was that I no longer participated as an organizer. I, I participated in activism as like a participant. And that allowed me to kind of step back from those organizing roles. Um, but it also meant that I started being in, involved in other movements that I hadn't been involved with previously, like the climate justice movement, the environmental movement, Black Lives Matter. Not that those things weren't on my radar, but that wasn't my main focus. And so making friends and starting to become involved in those communities allowed me to really open up and see what was going on, how they were doing it, how they were being more effective than we were in the animal rights movement, and build those bridges across communities, which allowed me to make friends, learn from them, but also take that knowledge and bring it back to the animal rights movement in the form of a really irritating YouTube channel called The Cranky Vegan, which is what I do now. <laughs> Just irritate the living shit out of people. <laughs> but, but that's kind of like, you know, that's that's what I do now. I've kind of moved from like this more radical organizing space into more of like, I hate to say like an educator, but like, you know, trying to talk to people and get them to think differently about the tactics and strategies we're using in hopes that we can be more effective. For everyone listening, highly recommend The Cranky Vegan. Jake and I have known each other, I'd say like kind of at a distance for a long, 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 long time. And, yeah. you know, you're someone that uh, I always respected, but you know, when you were younger, I always felt like you're a bit, a bit edgy for me in terms of like, you're <laughs> like, you know, like the time we did a little bit, I got to know you. I was like, damn, that guy's angry, man. He's an angry dude. <laughs> And when you emerged with the Cranky Vegan, I got to tell you, I was like instantly like, this is a guy who's still got that anger, but has has found a new way of expressing it. And it, I find it to be like an incredible resource, super powerful. And that's not to take away from where you were before. It's touched my heart a lot to see like your journey and, and how you've used that momentum to get to where you are today. No, I, I appreciate that for sure. Yeah, it's like it is a learning experience. I think whenever you get involved in something new, you know, you go hard in it, whether that's a new corporation or a job or activism. But like, for me, I was just a pissed off kid. Like I was enraged at what was going on in the world. I'm like, I don't understand why this still happens. I always tell people this, like I was a judgmental asshole. Like I was so <laughs> mean, even before I was vegan, I was like, I used to be mean to vegans. And then I became one and, you know, and then, and then I was just a mean vegan. But like, uh, you know, and that's why I always say, like, you got to give people room to change and, and, and grow and experience and learn. And, and like, you can't count people out so fast. You know, there's the, the whole expression in the animal rights movement. Like, you can't love animals and eat them, too. And it's like, well, you can because we all did it. Like, we all like every vegan, unless you were born vegan, which I guaranteed 99.9 whatever weren't, you loved animals and ate them, too. Just don't be such an asshole to people and give them a chance to change. And they'll get there. I think I, I like to think that they'll get there. Are people who decide to go vegan for whatever reason responsible for getting involved in activism? That's a tough one. I think we often confuse plant-based with vegan. You know, plant-based is more of a diet and vegan is more of like, I always think of it as hip hop with all the different components making up hip hop. You know, veganism is a plant-based diet, but it's also the philosophy of animal liberation and, and recognizing the 
rights of non-human animals to live a life free of exploitation. So if someone is interested in being plant-based or becomes, you know, starts eating a plant-based diet, like I don't think you're required to become an activist. Even if you're vegan, like I think you're not required to become an activist. But I think in a way, by default, you kind of are, you know. Well, I'll go back to the idea. It's like, is activism a young person's game? Um, and, you know, you gave us that Tupac quote earlier and we talked about how you've grown and changed. Do you think to really be an effective activist, is there an expiration date on that in terms of age? No. I always think of like um, Kwame Ture, who's one of my favorite activists, previously known as Stokely Carmichael. I mean, this was a guy that like from a very early age, probably in his teens, up until the day he died in his, I want to say his 60s or 70s, he was an activist and he constantly was changing and evolving his, his tactics. Like he was someone that really incorporated the idea of like every tool in the toolbox. I mean, he tried everything. Like he did voter registration in the South. He marched with Martin Luther King. He was a big player in SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He coined the term black power. He became like this armed revolutionary with the Black Panther Party. He got really involved in the Pan-African movement and eventually moved to Africa to, to work on issues there. Like activism is going to change and the way you do it is going to change. But that spirit, I think that like revolutionary spirit is always kind of like will always be in you and it's going to look different and it's going to feel different and it'll cause you to act differently. But I don't think that burns out. Where do you see skepticism in measuring success, success of the movement, the animal liberation movement? I, I hate to keep harping on social media, but it really, you see a lot of like people that are like, I got this many views on Facebook. I got this many likes and blah, 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 blah. And, and you're, you just kind of look at that and be like, well, that's not really how you measure success. Like a view on a Facebook video, for instance, is what is three seconds is what counts as a view. A lot of organizations and a lot of people look to that as measurements of success. They look at like individual change. Well, I had three people write me and said they went vegan as a, as an indicator that what I'm doing is effective and all those things are great. Sure. But like, is it really leading up to the change that we want to see in the world? And I think like for me, despite being awful at math, like statistics and numbers are super interesting to me because to me, that's like, they tell the real story. And what we see in the animal rights movement is a lot of people focusing on individual change with the idea that like the more vegans you create, the less animals will be eaten. And then you hear things like we're on a road to success. We've seen more people become vegan in the last five years than ever before. And we're up 600% and all of this stuff. But statistically, the numbers are showing that's not really the case. We're seeing that like, you know, more animals are being killed every year than the year before. The only thing that's really affecting that and making those numbers go down is when we go into an economic depression or we have a pandemic like COVID, which as a side note, I think is super interesting because you can look at that and be like, what made the numbers drop? Well, it was a huge like clusterfuck in the corporate sector. The supply side is what failed us. Not that a bunch of people were like, oh, it's COVID, so we can't eat meat. I mean, I don't know. To me, that just seems like a no-brainer. People, you know, a few years ago, people were like, the number of vegans in the UK have gone up 600%. We're winning. We're winning. And then you go, cool. That was a Gallup poll from 2016, up 600%. But if you go back to the Gallup poll in 1990, there were more vegans and vegetarians in 1990 than there were in 2016. It has just dropped so much that it's gone back up to, you know, to the point where it was 30 years pre previously, 20 years previously. And people just like don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that like what they're doing isn't working. I have an enormous amount of skepticism around how animal rights community measures its successes because I think they're just kind of grasping at straws at this point. 
And that's just not helpful. I'd much rather be like, hey, we're not winning, which happens to be the name of a series on my YouTube channel called Are We Winning? Uh, where I delve into uh, the, <laughs> the topic of are we actually winning? Uh, because I think it's super important to be, I would much rather be like, hey, we're actually not winning. We're failing. And then discuss why we are failing and then we can change it. Why live in this like cloud of like beautiful, like hurrah, like we're winning and like patting ourselves on the back. It's like when we just continually fail and that just does not seem helpful or beneficial in any scenario, activism or otherwise. Like I think we just need to be realistic about what we're able to achieve and what we're not and adjust accordingly. Hmm. So a lot of people get into activism, whatever their focus, whether it's animal rights, Black Lives Matter, whatever it is, through subculture. You know, so in the case of animal rights, a lot of people find that via punk rock and hardcore. From your perspective, is there any danger tricking yourself into limiting your reach by just playing to that audience over and over again, not taking your activism outside of that community? Yeah. Yeah. I was hoping we were going to talk about subcultures and and social change because it's super fascinating to me because that's how I got involved was entirely through music. You're constantly patting yourself in the back with, with these small subcultures. Like you're basically like in a circle pit, mm -hmm. uh, patting each other on the back saying, nice job, buddy. Keep running in the circle. We'll yeah, get there yeah, eventually. Yeah. Uh, but, but, and that's why I'm such a fan of like building bridges and looking outside of our own bubbles in order to make change. Like the simple fact is like all of these communities that are trying to make change are small fractions of the global population. And we just can't win by ourselves, particularly the animal rights movement. It's so small. And it never really grows that much bigger. And so unless we put some of our like, I always talk, call it purity politics, like this idea of moral baselines that like, you know, you have to be vegan before you are this or you, you know, you have to be vegan before your activism or your other politics count. Um, we need to put all that aside and, and get out of our bubbles, our subcultures and stop preaching to one another and, and only supporting one another and start working with people that have similar goals, but might not completely align 100%. I'm always talking about the environmental movement or the climate justice movement are so closely related to the animal rights movement. Yet the animal rights movement just like shits on the environmental movement constantly. And I just don't understand how that's helpful. I talk about the idea of collective liberation, that like all the liberation struggles are, are intertwined, like human liberation, earth liberation, animal liberation, they all are intertwined and one can't win without the other. That might not completely intersect in our lifetimes, but if we don't start doing the work now in order to make sure that those seeds are planted for the future, it will never grow. And I think that's a hard pill, particularly for vegans, to swallow because that means putting aside those really strong convictions around eating animals and being like, okay, this person's doing incredible work as an activist, but they eat animals. And that really is hard for vegans. But I think the reality is there's so many beautiful people in the world and so many amazing activists that we miss out on because we don't put that purity politics. We don't set that moral baseline to the side and reach out. And if we don't, we're just kind of stuck in that circle pit, patting each other on the back. Yeah, man, I'll never forget the first time I saw uh, Earth Crisis. And so for anyone listening who's not like from the punk or hardcore culture, Earth Crisis is one of the the bands, the few bands that I think like truly made like a lasting impact in terms of um, getting a message out around uh, animal rights, animal activism. By no means the only one, but they're like, they're one of the ones that took it to a whole different level. I remember the first time I saw Earth Crisis and I looked around and I thought every single person in this room is either vegan, thinking about going vegan, 
or terrified to eat a hamburger in front of anyone else. Like they, <laughs> like they would never even think about it. And I remember just like, wow, this is totally sick. And then on the way home, you're at the stoplight and like the person in the car beside you is eating like Jack in the box and the person beside you is eating Burger King. You're like, oh yeah, like yeah, we we're just in a room of like super like-minded echo chamber. And, yeah. and, and both can be true. Like that's like a powerful thing to be like a part of something like that. And I can say like, for sure, I became vegetarian because of Youth of Today. I became vegan because of, because of Earth Crisis. And like the music and the culture propelled me. But at one point for me, definitely like punk and hardcore starts being a limiting factor rather than a growth factor. And it's going to become a platform that you can launch from or it's going to become a prison that's going to limit you. And you got to decide which one it is. At one point, I kind of was like, "Oof, I've let myself get caught up in the prison mindset I got to get. And like, I got to get back to the platform mindset. And that's one of those things, not just around activism. I think about like growth being part of subculture is like if you get too stuck and you just try and like relive you know your your teenage years through your subculture for the rest of your life that's no longer a growth platform and i and that's why i asked that question that's interesting not to not interrupt you but like i can i i totally agree with that and i can remember the exact show where i was like oh this isn't working for mm -hmm. me like if i want to make social change i can't do it here anymore Mm. You remember the exact show. What was the Interestingly show? enough, it was it was Earth Crisis, Madball, and Scarhead at uh, Rock Candy in Seattle, <laughs> 1999. <laughs> I remember the exact moment. I, I down to the second. <laughs> That's incredible, man. Okay, so uh, one last question, and then we'll we'll pass it over to you for uh, final thoughts. All right. So we all know vegan food has greatly improved over the past. 20 years, but very specifically, I'd say like the past like seven years, it's been like insane, like so much different. But as a guy who has been eating vegan for very many years, we know back in the day, there was a lot of pretty terrible, terrible options, but there were a few good ones. I'd like you to pick your top three back in the day, actually pretty good vegan things that you would eat that would be like known, pro like vegan products. Back in the day, top three things that were good back in the day, actually good, not fake good. Yeah. Um, rice dream. You made those, um, ice cream cookie things. Uh, yeah. Okay. Sandwiches essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think they stopped making last year, but the mint one, the mint ice cream cookie coated chocolate thing. Amazing. Was the, was the only good one out of them though. I didn't like any of the rest. The rest yeah. of like anything that's rice dream tastes like sweet sand to me. Like it just tastes like <laughs> dirt mixed with sugar. Like, I remember getting like the rice dream Neapolitan ice creams in like 1996. I'm like, I feel like I'm eating sand. Yeah. Um, but the, the mint pies, moon mm -hmm. pies, whatever they were, mm -hmm. ugh, I'm so bummed they stopped making them. Other one, um, it's kind of an obscure one, but Tofuti used to make like a Stouffer's French bread pizza type of thing. Hmm. Uh, which was like, you know, like a half a loaf of French bread with like pizza sauce and cheese and you put it in the microwave with like the weird metal thing to make it crispy. Mm -hmm. That was pretty great. And then I would say Vita Soy Vanilla Soy Milk, which I think got like ran out of the United States <laughs> in the last 10 years because it was soy and it was GMO or something. But man, that tasted good. I'm sure there's so many I'm missing, but those are the three that, that come to mind. 
All right, man. Awesome. So uh, as we're closing off, what are your thoughts you want to leave us with? Because I'll just say this has been uh, a conversation like Monica and I were just talking about it this weekend, how psyched we were to talk to you. And, you know, it could have gone anyway, like we could have been more surface, but I feel we hit like the perfect stride of going like big level ideas. And then we actually did some really cool deep dives. So I took a lot away from this conversation. But for our audience, any last thoughts, anything you want to share about activism, your journey, anything like that? I think that the takeaway for me is like, there's always going to be something that needs to be changed in the world. I don't want to give the impression that like individuals can't make change. I think that there's a lot of power in small communities. I think there's a lot of power in a handful of people recognizing what your skills are and what you're good at and how each other's skills can complement one another. You know, when we put those things together, even if it's just a small group of us, even if there's just three or four of you doing this work, you really can start making lasting change. And I think that we live in a world that just feels massive and overpowering and corrupt and just kind of deadly uh, for every anyone and everything. That feels enormous. But I do think that like small communities of people can really start to make change that can snowball into something much bigger. Um, so what I always say at the end of all my videos is to keep fighting. And I think it's not just like a catchy thing that I use to wrap up a video, but it is true. Like, I think we just need to keep fighting and and eventually we end up getting to the place that we want to get to and seeing the things change that we want to see. And ultimately uh, we win. Awesome. And thank you. Uh, Monica, any last thoughts on your end? This was a great conversation. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Awesome. All right, everyone. Well, we will see you in the outro and Spencer drop the beat. Damn, that was an incredible conversation. And uh, thanks again to Monica for being our co-host today. Change is a wild thing because we talk about it a lot. And I kind of laugh when Jake was going in on social media because just earlier, Patrick and I were kind of complaining about social media. Ah, yeah, it's a great tool and there's lots of great information out there. But just reposting people's stuff and like signal boosting stuff like, yes, yes, yes to all of it. I get it. At the same time, like, there's just so much centering of ourselves in the story. The action is what matters. And I'm not saying I'm out here like, you know, doing anything better than anyone else. But one of the things that I really stands out for me is like when I think of Jake and the things that he's doing, the things he's talking about, so much of the through line is like someone who's really willing to walk the walk and take the consequences for it. So whatever that is in our lives, whether it's really digging deep and creating some change in the world around us or in our communities, or just creating change in your own life, transforming your life. There's a difference between talking about it and doing it. Let's be doers. Let's make those changes today and tomorrow and the day after. So with that, Jake, thank you so much for being on the show. And everybody, I want to remind you as we're closing off that we are produced and edited by Spencer Priest. Recorded by Patrick McKechnie and with our design by Tammy Levy. So with that, we will see you next time on One Step Beyond. One step.